recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. This is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 4th, 2014. I, I, I'd like to say that I, I'm pleased and I'm grateful to Yahweh our God that Christogenia is five years old today. It was five years ago that I had registered the domain. The website didn't appear immediately, of course, but I could count Christogenia's fifth birthday today. I made some remarks at the end of last night's program in the last 30 minutes, which relate to my ministry and, and some of my opinions, considering the directions that I've tried to take it, where I wanted to go, and, and um, I'm not going to repeat them here tonight. I just want to, want to vociferate that I stand by everything I said last night. That, that if Christian identity really wants to push what it is, what, well, what I can only consider to be the truth, it, if it wants to bring that into the public conversation, I'm not a, expecting the public to accept it, of course, but we should be in the public discourse, and I've always tried to put it there, that that's my main initiative at Christogenia. And, and if we want to be taken seriously, we have to learn to identify the clowns and to push them to the fringes, to push them to the periphery and not to accept them. If, if you're listening to people who are denying the divinity of Christ, who are obfuscating our core issues, such as the racial issue, which is the single biggest issue, well, well then, if you're entertaining those clowns, then you are facilitating them. You are enabling them. Turkeys that, that um, preach new doomsday scenarios every 60 days because they don't have anything else to talk about. Everybody here knows, should know who I'm talking about. We can't enable those people. What we can't um, facilitate the, their clownery or, or we're never going to be taken seriously. And, and, and that's all I have to say about that for now. Once again, I, I have sword brethren with me. Well, once again, I have sword brethren with me, and we're going to discuss the, the life and sacrifice of Isaac and, and then the life of Jacob and Esau. This is Pragmatic Genesis, Explaining to Seedline, Part 12. Hello, Brian. Hello, and I just wanted to briefly say that this is almost the seven-year mark. I started doing shows in January. My first show was January 20th, 2007, so it's been just about seven years. Well, wonderful. Okay, we, we have um, a few things to discuss here. I mean, I don't think we're going to get through all this material tonight. I'd like to touch on a, cert, on, on a few certain things concerning the call of Abraham. I don't know if you have any opening remarks or anything you'd like to talk about. Anything from well, last week? Uh, again, the questions that went unanswered that you said we would get into today, just, you know, why would God order Abraham to sacrifice Isaac if human sacrifice is explicitly forbidden, and that's something that's typically associated with pagans, but I suppose we're going to get into that pressing question of mine with this presentation. Well, well human sacrifice murder was absolutely scorned in, in the Old Testament law, of course. It, it's murder. The, the um, what Was it expressly forbidden 
before the Levitical law. The, the Levitical law only bound the children of Israel in their national relationship to Yahweh before the agreement at Mount Sinai where the children of Israel submitted to the Levitical law. There was, a, well, what seems to be a breakdown in the social order where all of the nations of the Adamic race had forsaken the, the Melchizedek priesthood, the idea that the oldest living family patriarch would rule over the tribe and, and seem to have gone their own way. That's a matter of scripture too. Paul explains it in Acts chapter 14 that they went their own way, probably related to um, Nimrod's being the first tyrant, the, the separation of the nations at the Tower of Babel, that there was a, a breakdown in the in the enforcement of God's will amongst the Adamic race on earth. That's very clear. It, it's, it's explicit in the scripture. That now, even um, if you read, I think it's, I'm going to cite it tonight in a later context, I believe it's Joshua chapter 24 where it's even explained that Abraham's family had been worshiping strange gods, had been taken off in idolatry. So, so Abraham was pulled out of a world that was in a total state of chaos, that was in a state of, of, of decay. The Canaanite tribes, the Hurrians, the Hittites, the Amorites, had become the chief tribes of the Oikumene at the time of Abraham. We can demonstrate that, and we've already spoken about it in this series in, in archaeology. It's very clear that those were the circumstances at the call of Abraham. Abraham is sort of like another Noah. He's being rescued 1,200 years after the flood. Abraham is being selected for salvation out of the old Adamic world. Well, which was actually a, a pretty perverse place, even though, of course, human sacrifice would be odious to God. It was a, a fact of life at that time. So, so we'll, we will explain why Yahweh God demanded that Isaac be sacrificed in the historical context, and, and it's very little taught in Christian identity, in the historical context, it, it brings a lot of light to the scripture once it's understood why God demanded that. Discussing the call of Abraham last week, we saw in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham tried to appoint Eleazar of Damascus, a man of his own race and a steward of his house to be his heir. Yahweh would not allow such a replacement for Abraham's seed. He demanded that Abraham have an heir from his loins and told Abraham that his heir would indeed come out of his loins. In Genesis chapter 16, Sarah tries to, and, and it was certainly fleshly, Sarah tries to procure a son for Abraham by giving him her handmaid. And she later acknowledged that she had done wrong, and, and that's often overlooked in Christian identity circles. We're going to touch on that scripture tonight. While Ishmael was loved by Abraham, there's no doubt, it's explicit in scripture. 
and he was promised a blessing by God because Yahweh recognized Abraham's love for Ishmael. Abraham's love for Ishmael was still not good enough for Yahweh God, who had his own plan that Abraham's heir come from Sarah. We're not told why that is. I believe it probably had to do with Ham's being discredited and, and the Messiah couldn't come through him, that, that Shem was the chosen vessel and therefore Abraham's wife had to be one of his own kindred. That's conjecture, of course, because it's not spelled out in Scripture. There's no other valid explanation that I could think of. I'm sorry. Well, we also address, too, you know, a lot of the evangelicals, they, they say when Ham uncovered Noah's nakedness, that they say, well, he must have been unconscious and sleeping, and he just lifted a towel that was covering his father. He uncovered his nakedness. What we've established clearly uncovering his father's nakedness means he had sex with his father's wife. Well, well that's what the Bible establishes. You know, even the, the Baptists go by this law of first mention. If you want to define uncovering one's father's nakedness, go to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, where it specifically says that he who has slept with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. There, that term is defined. I want to read Genesis 16, or at least in, in part. I won't read the whole chapter. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, Yahweh has restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid, that it may be that I may obtain children by her. In the ancient world, Sarah owned her handmaid. She had property rights over her handmaid. Hagar was basically a slave. Paul um, even explains that in Galatians chapter 4. So Sarah had the right to marry her slave to who she wanted to. And, and we've been discussing what marriage is in the Christogenia Forum. I would like to point this out. Here, Hagar becomes Abraham's wife as well as Sarah. And, and that's a contract between Sarah and Abraham because Abraham, I'm sorry, because Sarah has property rights over her slave. I just wanted to point that out. That, that marriage, the results of it were recognized by God. Ishmael was promised to be a great nation. Sarah despised Hagar when she conceived. Yahweh told Hagar to return to to, to Sarah. Later on, once Ishmael became of age, Yahweh told Abraham to basically divorce Hagar. That, that's because of the possibility of competition between Ishmael and Isaac. So Ishmael had to be put out of the way. That's the way it is. That's the, the way the scripture has it. But that was still a, a, a quote-unquote marriage. It was a private contract between Abraham and Sarah. It, Hagar really even had no say in the matter because she was a slave. The same thing we'll see later with Jacob and Laban and the sons, I'm sorry, and the daughters of Laban, Rachel and Leah. But we'll discuss that later. And Sarah said unto Abraham, Abram at this time, Behold now, Yahweh has restrained me from bearing, I pray thee, go in unto my maid, that it be that I may obtain children by her. 
And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. And Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian. Now, this is a white woman. It's an Adamic woman. She's of the tribe of Mitzrayim because she's an Egyptian. She's of the daughters of Ham. There's no reason to doubt that she wasn't a white woman. Abraham is not a race mixer. That, that contention, I've heard it before, it's absolutely ridiculous. And Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong... In other words, Sarah here is admitting that she screwed up. She really wanted to help Abram um, obtain an heir. Well, well, here she's admitting she made a mistake. My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. Yahweh judges between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. He's giving her back to Sarah. Thy maid is in thy hand, do to her as it pleaseth thee. And Hagar bare Abram a son, that there's some contention in there, and, and Yahweh had told Hagar to return to Sarah through, an, through a messenger. I'm going to skip over that part. It's not really relevant well, here. Well, there's a question here. Are we given any insight as to how an Egyptian came to be a handmaiden for Sarah? Well, well that happened in an earlier chapter of Genesis, in chapter 15 when, when, when they went to Egypt, and, and Sarah was actually rewarded Hagar as, as, as a handmaiden. Was that customary back then, though, people of one nation, to give away their own countrymen and, and you know, servitude? To well, why not? If you, if, if you see somebody of another re- nation that you respect and you want to honor with a gift, people were chattel. Very often, it's a fact of life in the ancient world. It, it, people were chattel all the way up through the um, through the medieval period. It, it's only in a, in a, in our um, our modern Weltanschauung that that slavery and and the trading of people as property is despised. Un, until the last few centuries, it was common. It was common in all Adamic societies. It was common in Greece and Rome. It was common in feudal Europe. Now, there were much worse habits than that, which can be unveiled in our history, such as the lords of the manor and, and, and the law of the first night, where, where commoners never received their bride's virginity. The lords of the manor did. That goes all the way back to ancient Babylonia. I could show you that in inscriptions that are 4,000 years old, but it also happened in medieval Europe. But there's a lot of um, sin and, and shame upon our race that, that um, well, most modern people today can't even comprehend. But pr- people were property. People were very often property. It was a fact of life. Hagar was property. She was given to Sarah, and, and Hagar had no say in the matter. And then Sarah gave her to Abraham as a wife. We're not, there's nothing indicative at all that Hagar had any say in that manner. So that's the way it was. That's a cold, hard fact of life in the ancient world. That the, um, what we'll get into it momentarily, the, the wives of Jacob 
Rachel and Leah, Leah had no say in the matter. Rachel had no say in the matter. It was all a business transaction between Jacob and Laban. And Sarah said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I, I just wanted to show that Sarah understood that she had made a mistake when she did this. I have given my maid into thy bosom when she saw that she had conceived. I was despised in her eyes. Yahweh judged between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. Sarah could have exterminated Hagar at this point if she wanted to. And, and instead she made life miserable for her. Later on in chapter 16 we see, And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. So we see that Ishmael is roughly 14 years older than Isaac, who's not quite born yet. The importance of an heir of God's choosing is again illustrated in Genesis chapter 17. Ishmael wasn't good enough for God. From Abraham's loins and from the womb of Sarah would Abram's wife come. Would you like to read Genesis chapter 17? I have some notes right. interspersed in, in the end if you read it from my notes. All right. Genesis 17, And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee. And thou shalt be a father of many nations. And as an aside, all these people, these Pentecostal types mostly, that talk about being slain in the spirit and falling backwards so, you know, some con man can catch them, there's no account in the Bible of people falling backwards. Is there, the people that are in the presence of God, they fall forward on their face. Well, I, I, I never did a survey of that, but that's okay. I just thought that was an interesting aside for anybody who had ever considered that. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto them and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee and their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generation. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of my seed. He, he, that, is bought, he that is born in thy house 
and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. And God said unto Abraham, for, As for Sarai, thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And it appears you wrote on the side note, Abraham loved Ishmael and thought he was a sufficient heir. Ishmael was conceived with Hagar because of Sarah's concern that she could not provide an heir for Abraham. So, now, my aside here. Basically, the issue was then that Sarah was doubting God. Well, well it seems that Sarah acted out of fleshly desire. It, it doesn't, the, the scripture doesn't portray her as doubting God, but then the scripture doesn't portray her as being aware of the word of God either. I mean, whether or not Abram shared that with her is immaterial. It, it's something we can only conjecture. It, it's the promises were made to Abraham. Abraham accepted the promises. He believed them. For whatever reason, Sarah offered him a, a, a woman that he could possibly have a child with, and he did. He was more than happy to accept that woman, and he did. The idea that the heir must come from Sarah is not explicitly expressed in Scripture until Genesis chapter 17, and Sarah had already offered Abraham Hagar. So, so what we can get, you know, the order of these things indicates that Sarah didn't know that she would be the mother of the heir until this time. And, and at 90, 99 years old, what woman could have expected that? So Sarah was acting out of fleshly desire, but, but she also, not knowing anything else, and we can't assume that she knew anything else, not knowing anything else, she was acting with re relatively, from a human point of view, she was acting with relatively good intentions. She wanted Abraham to have an heir. But it's not the will of man that's going to prevail here, it's the will of God. Now, Isaac and Ishmael, Sarah's a free woman, and, and as free as a married woman can be in, in this time, and Hagar's a slave. And they later become types, as Paul himself um, illustrates in Galatians chapter 4, for the difference between the, the children of bondage and the children which have freedom in Christ. And, and they're a type for, for that illustration. It's um, evident that Yahweh God also did not want the heirs of his kingdom to be born to, to Hagar, who was a woman in bondage. So, so that's another um, illustration and, and another subplot w which is transpiring here. And not to, you know, question or doubt God, and I'm sure I have the answer contained within my question, but if God says that he's making an everlasting possession of the land of Canaan for our people, 
then why aren't we in possession of the land of Canaan today? Is it because we broke the covenant on our end and the covenant had to be renewed then? I mean, if he says it's going to be an everlasting possession, I would think that the implication is even if we break our end, it's still an everlasting possession, even if we get punished in some other way. But our race has lost the land of Canaan, haven't we? Well, well we lost the land of Canaan when Yahweh put a hedge there and we couldn't return. 2,700 years ago after the Assyrian deportations. We lost the land of Canaan. Israel, the, the remnant of Judah was allowed to return, but Israel was told they would never return. That Now, technically, if you want to really look at it technically, the land of Canaan belongs to the king of England who won it in war in 1917, and they parceled that land out to whomever they chose to, to rule over the various sections. Arab chieftains, Jewish Zionists, it, it doesn't matter. Um, we, we could get technical. The, um, I, I don't think that we have to. It's our everlasting possession just because it has squatters in it. In the meantime, while, while we're not there currently, that, that doesn't mean we won't possess it forever. I, I mean, the squatters have been there for 1,500 or 2,000 years, and, and forever is a much longer time, right? All right. That there's a lot of other prophecies that, that are in play, and this, this, life, this age is temporal. All right, so it's not an unreasonable answer then when the, the Jews and the Palestinians are debating who's the rightful owner of Palestine to say, well, you know, choice A would be the Jews, choice B is the Palestinians. And the truth is not. The truth is not right, because all those bastards are headed to the lake of fire. Right, so the outside-of-the-box solution is that we're the rightful owners. Well, well, right, the children of Israel are the rightful owners of, of well... Of everything, they're the heirs of the world, right? All right. 19. And God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make him a great nation. Your aside, we do not know who Ishmael himself married, and from this we should see that at least the first generations of his offspring must have been legitimate, but eventually his offspring became mixed, and especially with the Edomites and Canaanites. And well, yes, well, and they did. And let me just add that, you know, that there's a nation which can be considered Ishmael, because the word is linguistically close enough, mentioned several times in connection with Kedar, which is indeed a city of Ishmael, in the Assyrian inscriptions from around the, um, the 6th and the, the 7th and 8th centuries B.C. So, so Ishmael was indeed recognized as a nation, even if the... The scriptures usually refer to the names of cities and the inhabitants of those cities in the books of the prophets. Ishmael was there. It was the tribe of Ishmael inhabiting those cities, Kedar and the neighboring cities. There was a lot of admixture, however, and, and this could be proven out in the pages of the Old Testament, between the Edomites and the Ishmaelites over time. So, Can we reasonably conclude then that assertions made by a 
large number of scholars, mainstream people, some people in the Patriot scene that the Arabs are descended from the Ishmaelites of old? Well, well we can conclude that some Arabs did descend from the Ishmaelites, but they're bastards, so it really doesn't matter. Right. So discussing the origins of bastards, it might be academically interesting, but there's no real point in saying, oh, well, these bastards came from this land, those bastards came from that land. A bastard is a bastard. They're all equally worthless. Well, well, right. It's the Nabataean Arabs even have a name that goes all the way back to, to Nabioth, to, to, to the, the, the patriarchs of the tribe of Ishmael, the children of Ishmael. But, but that doesn't make them legitimately Ishmael. The Christian world, and especially Christian identity, I, I mean, I, I think this clown's name was Nord Davis. That, that a lot of identity Christians followed after. He's a turkey. He, he, he wanted to insist that, um, that these Arab bastards were the children of Ishmael, and therefore they were legitimate. Well, well if you read the prophets, we're told time and again that these people were going to be exterminated, that devils were going to live in their cities, that, 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 that screech owls or lilith demons would inhabit those cities. Demons are inhabiting those cities. Those bastards living in those cities today, they are demons. It's that simple. That's what the scripture says would live there. Those bastards, they're demons. That's the way Christians should look at them. That's the word of God. All right. So people are waiting for horror movie characters with horns and a cloven hoof and a big tail and a harpoon or, you know, some sort of pitchfork to inhabit those cities. That's just comic book cartoonish nonsense. The demons are already there. Well, well it is comic book cartoonish nonsense. If you examine the Septuagint, Clifton Amheiser has pointed this out in some of his Beast of the Field papers, that word that the devils or satyrs would inhabit these places which is several times in the prophets in, in Isaiah. Well, well, that word in Greek is ono kentoris, and ono kentoris is a word which means a tailless ape. If you ask me, those Arab bastards living in those cities, yeah, that word describes them perfectly. They are tailless apes. Interesting. The scripture is true. And, and any man that thinks that those beasts are, are man is a liar. All right. Continuing, verse 21. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. As an aside, your notes, Yahweh had named Isaac before he was born. Continuing. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham and Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God had said unto him. And Abraham was ninety years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised, and Ishmael his son. And all the men of his house, born in the house, and bought with money of the stranger, were circumcised with him. Now, these idiots that don't understand when the Bible repeats itself, it says here in verse 24 how old he was when he was circumcised, how old Ishmael was in verse 26, and then in 26 
it says that they were both circumcised on the same day. It doesn't mean that, oh, he was circumcised in verse 24, and then again in verse 26, he was circumcised twice. Well, we're right. The Bible, the, the Scripture repeats itself to reinforce things all the time. And he, the Hebrews had a, um, a, a linguistic habit, I, I would call it, an idiom, but where quite often things were repeated and spoken two different ways in order to better relate an idea. That they did it all the time. They duplicated their, their statements. They did it all the time. The all men right. of Abraham's... peculiar to their writing style, then, basically. It's part of their culture. Absolutely. And, and those Hebraisms are, are replete in the Old Testament. There's... Um, I don't remember how the King James translates it, but there's language in, in Mark, for instance, when Joshua Christ is feeding thousands of people these fish, and Mark says that they sat down in companies, in companies. The same word is repeated twice, and, well, well that was part of the um, the Hebrew idiom. That That means that they sat down in groups of groups, right? The men of Abraham's house were all Adamic men. There should be no doubt. From among Abraham's original kindred, his original wider tribe, Abraham took with him from Haran, it says in Genesis 12.4. So Abraham departed as Yahweh had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot, his brother's wife, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. That's an unspecified number of people. Now, later on, down the road, when we see Abraham in Genesis, I think it's chapter 14, had the battle with the kings, he was able to equip 300 men of arms. So, so that's a pretty sizable group that you need to equip 300 men out of it in, in full armor. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Now, Eleazar was a white Adamic man, ostensibly of the Shemitic descendants of either Eber or Aram. They lived in close proximity, the Hebrews, the sons of Arphaxad, and the sons of Aram, or, or the Syrians. They were all white. Ishmael, who was also white, a white Adamic man, was the son of Abraham with Hagar, the Egyptian woman. Here we see that all of these were circumcised, including Ishmael. However, that still did not qualify any of them, or even Ishmael, to be Abraham's heir. Ishmael was rejected, even though he was circumcised, and he must have, quote-unquote, believed. He was still, when he came of age, sent away, so that Isaac could inherit the promises. And, and that's just the choosing of God and how serious it is, it didn't matter. Oh, can I stick around? I'm circumcised. I believe. No, you can't stick around because that's not good enough, so just beat it. You have a different fate, a different destiny. You're not one of these people from this chosen line. In Isaac will thy seed be called. That's the, the election, the choice of God. We can't pick God, and we're going to see that. And that's the real meaning in the sacrifice of Isaac, Isaac, we can't pick God. God chose us, if indeed we are descendants of Isaac. Now the lessons that Christians should get from this is that 
there is no substituting for those who are the recipients of the promises of the inheritance of Abraham according to God's word. Abraham tried to substitute with Eleazar. God said no. Sarah tried to substitute by giving Abraham Hagar and he had a son that he loved. God said no. There's no substitute, there's no replacing this plan of God and the people that God is choosing. There's no substitute. Replacement theology is a sham. We pointed out last week in, in an illustration from Romans chapter 4 that Paul of Tarsus was not teaching replacement theology. He was teaching fulfillment theology. That's what we believe. That's what identity Christians believe, that these words of God all came true and we can identify their fulfillment. There's nothing unbiblical about that. If you're a mainstream Judeo and you believe that Jews are God's chosen people, then you have to believe in some sort of replacement theology, otherwise Christians don't fit in. Well, well, of course you do, but that's because they don't examine Scripture in accordance with history. In fact, they don't even examine Scripture in accordance with itself. Paul was basically telling the Romans in in chapter 4 that they were the fulfillment of one of these nations descended from Abraham's seed. Most Christians today would, would balk at that idea. Oh no, the Romans weren't Jews. You can't say they were Jews. That's absolutely childish, but that's their attitude. That's their attitude. It's ridiculous. And it's unbiblical. They're the ones that are ahistorical and unbiblical. If they believe that Jews are God's chosen people, then why are they practicing Christianity? Why don't they go down to the synagogue and start practicing Judaism and get on the winning team? Well, well, they should all jump into the lake of fire. Maybe that's where they belong. There's no substituting for God's word. And, And... we're about to see why with the sacrifice of Isaac. If, if she would like to read this, Genesis 22. All right. Genesis 22, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went on to the place at which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they both and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together, and they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. 
And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of Yahweh called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yehovah. Am I butchering that? Yehovah? Um, I would say Yehovah Yirah, or okay. Yahweh Yirah would probably be better. Okay. Yahweh Yirah. As it is said to this day, in the mount of Yahweh it shall be seen. And the angel of Yahweh called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith Yahweh, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And the dominionists who want to claim that, you know, all the nations of the earth have been blessed by our race, and as long as they bless us, they'll be blessed, who's to say that, you know, a bunch of Hutus living in the, the desert or a bunch of pygmies in the Congo with a bunch of mud huts, just because we draw lines on a map and call them a nation, a geopolitical entity, they're not a nation. Well, well we've already demonstrated first that Genesis 12.3 can only possibly apply in the Word of God to Genesis, those nations of Genesis chapters 10 and 11 who are all white. The, the people that want to assume that we've been, we've been blessing the other races so they're going to bless us, well, if that's the case, then why are niggers raping hundreds of white women every day? Right. Why are niggers black. destroying white lives every day, destroying our cities? It seems to me that we fed these Hutus and Tutsis like idiots, and it's coming back to bite us. There's a whole different dynamic going on there. It has nothing to do with the blessing and the call of Abraham. Nothing whatsoever. Since most of the, the white Adamic Genesis the ten nations have long since eclipsed, that blessing is basically null and void because even though they will be blessed in Abraham's seed because through Abraham's seed comes the redemption which is in, is, which is in Christ and the restoration of the Adamic race, they can't bless us any longer because if any of them are among us, they're indistinguishable from the rest of us. So, so the Genesis 10 nations, that they're, they're a moot point. Right. And as an aside, are we still obligated to offer burnt offerings? I understand the general consensus is no, but I ask this question because there's one person in Israelite identity who claims that he's the only one in the entire country upholding the law because he sacrifices doves and burnt offerings you know, several times a year at the proper point. Okay, so he's and a Jew. I wonder if... So he's a Jew. So he's basically a Pharisee. And I, I think you know who I'm referring to. 
Well, well I'm, I'm not sure, but I, it don't even matter. He's a Jew. He's a Jew between the ears. Christ is our last sacrifice. Christ is our Passover. The law, the rituals of the law, are, are, are no longer necessary. The Levitical priesthood is dead. And in truth, can this man prove that he's a Levitical priest, that he has an appointment from God to conduct those rituals? Well, well of course well, he not. He says that... He's a clown. He says he's a, he says he's a Levitical priest. He runs an unaccredited, unofficial law school in Missouri. He's probably in his 70s, <laughs> oh, and he okay. won one case so, he argued. So he's a clown. All right. He, he's a clown. I, I want to see his genealogy. I want to see that he's a Levitical priest. Of course he's not. Of course he can't come up with that. I mean, if he's really a true white man, the odds are 1 in 13 that he's of the tribe of Levi if he's really white. But somehow, I don't think so. And even if he was a Levite, well, the Levitical priesthood has been eclipsed, as Paul explains in the epistle to the Hebrews. Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The change in priesthood is evident with the destruction of the temple and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the coming of the Messiah. Paul explains that in his epistle to the Hebrews. It's very clear. It, it's right from prophecy. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, prophecies an end of the sacrifices and the oblations. So, so this man is a clown that wants to write his own Bible. That's fine. But God's word refutes him. Right, so he should just be honest about it then, that he's not a Levitical priest, and he's going by his own theories and not the Bible. Because he said there that he's so the only person in the ideas, the totality of the law. That there are so many harebrained ideas disguising themselves as Christian identity, and, and that's what they are. They're harebrained. The man is harebrained. I'm not going to pull any punches. There are my reasons from Scripture. All right. The sacrifice of Isaac. First, that land, Moriah. It, it, Moriah just means chosen by Yahweh. Um, Yehovah Yira or Yahweh Yira, that mean, just means Yahweh sees. I, I just wanted to clarify that. Moriah is, according to the second book of Chronicles, I believe it's chapter 3, verse 1. Moriah is the name of the mount upon which Solomon built the temple. By tradition, that's where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. He was in the area, so I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. That the um, that there's been no greater misunderstood story than the sacrifice of Isaac. Yes, human sacrifice was a fact of life amongst many of the branches of our race at that time, that, that's clear in inscriptions, that's clear in the Bible, that, that people were partaking in that. It's clear in Greco-Roman literature that they, um, that they considered the possibilities of human sacrifice. In fact, there are stories, accounts of human sacrifice in the Greek epic poetry. And in the Greek tragic poetry, so, so it certainly happened. Uh, I have a, a literary um, similarity from Aeschylus in, in his play 
I'm sorry, this is from Euripides. It is play Iphigenia against the Tarians. It, it had to be an idea borrowed from the Hebrew Scriptures. It's so much alike. Where, where Agamemnon, the great chieftain of the Danans, what was told by the prophet Calchas that he had to sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia to Artemis if he wanted a favorable voyage to Troy to launch the war against the Trojans. And Agamemnon did sacrifice his daughter, but magically Artemis snatched her from the altar and provided a deer in her place. So Agamemnon really sacrificed the deer, and Iphigenia, his daughter, was carried off to to um, some place in Anatolia to serve as a as a priestess named Taurus to serve as a priestess in a temple of Artemis. There, so so that that's a story that's a, a, a an old story. It dates to what? Well, well, it dates to the Trojan War. In literature, it really dates to the 5th century B.C., Iphigenia among the Torians, and, and it's very similar to the story of Isaac and, and Abraham. I believe that stories like that only prove that the Bible, and, and we can show this in, in much Greek literature, that the Bible was well known, that the books that we know today is the Bible, the books of Moses and the books of the prophets were well known in the Greek world and they were drawn on for literary ideas by writers of that time. Just like writers of fiction today and writers of mythologies, they draw on true accounts from our time to make up their stories and and historical accounts as well and, and even the Bible. So, so the Bible's been a source of, of, of um, literary ideas for fiction writers ever since the dawn of time. But, but that doesn't discredit the biblical stories. Actually, it credits them because these stories were being copied at a very early time. These ideas were being borrowed. We see that they've been around for that long, and they clearly have. So that, that's a different argument. The only people, back to the sacrifice of Isaac, the only people that Yahweh ever sanctified to himself were Isaac and those in the loins of Isaac, who was offered to Yahweh on the altar by his father, Abraham, at God's request. This is important. There's an important theological concept going on here that people don't understand today because they don't understand how religion worked in the ancient world. In the ancient world, once something is offered to a deity on an altar, that object is perceived as belonging to the deity. In pagan religions, men chose what or who they would dedicate to a god. This is the difference with Christianity. With Christianity, it is Yahweh God who chooses who he would have dedicated to him. This is a signal difference which distinguishes the Christian faith from paganism. In Christianity, man cannot choose God. It's God who chooses man. Although it 
may not appear so on the surface. The placing of Isaac upon the altar was only a ceremony which dedicated Isaac and all of Isaac's offspring to Yahweh God for his own purposes. And this was at Yahweh's demand of Abraham. Abraham, being Isaac's father, has the power at this time of life or death over his son. Abraham basically owns his son. And he took his property, which is his son, and dedicated it. He dedicated it to God. Isaac is the only man in history who can possibly claim to have been chosen specifically by God to be dedicated to him. And if one is not from the loins of Isaac, one has no part with him whatsoever. In the ancient world, to curry the favor of a god or a goddess, men brought gifts, valuable gifts, silver, gold, works of magnificent art, and laid them on the altar of the idol. By that, they sought the favor of the idol, and they sought blessings in life. The temple of Apollo at Delphi is a, is, is a marked example of this. It was so rich with such gifts that many treasury vaults were built to house them. And the Greek city-states, including Athens and Sparta, made leagues and treaties to protect the temple at Delphi. The temple at Delphi grew so rich that it became basically the central bank of the Greek world. The temple at Delphi, the temples at that time were centers of banking because most of the temples had large deposits of gold and silver. They became banks. The priests of the temples were loaning out gold and silver to those who, who would promise to pay it back, offer property and collateral. However, they, well, they made the arrangement. But the temples, and, and this is an important concept, an important facet of Mystery Babylon, the temples became the central banks of the ancient world. And they also became centers of prostitution. The temple of Diana at Corinth was famous for, for prostitution. The, um, the temple was so famous for prostitution that the, the, the name of Corinth became synonymous with prostitution. That's why Paul gave the Corinthians so many admonishments concerning fornication. The children of poor parents or the children of slaves that parents couldn't afford to feed or, or just no longer wanted would be dedicated to temples. And in those temples, well, sometimes they could become priests or priestesses. They're still whores. Or they became literal prostitutes. And they would go out and sell their asses and bring the money back to the temple and the temple would profit by them. They were owned. They were sex slaves owned by the temples. And the temples were houses of prostitution, centers of prostitution, and centers of banking. The temple at Delphi 
grew so rich that it became the central bank of the classical Greek world. It was abused by Philip of Macedon. It was sacked by the Gauls. Eventually, it was sacked by Sulla, the Roman emperor. And Roman, after the sack of Delphi by Sulla, Rome eclipsed Greek, Greece as the, the, the world's commercial capital and gained a hegemony over the whole world. Wait, are you talking about General Sulla, the one who marched on Rome and established the, one of the first dictatorships in the late Republic? He was right. never an emperor, though. Well, well, he was a dictator. He, he, he was actually the Romans used to vote dictators, but he, he was basically right. an emperor. He, he, he was a tyrant that asserted himself over the Roman world. He became its de facto emperor. He became its de facto ruler, and. Um, he, he actually ceded that. He, he instituted reforms and, and, and ceded his position voluntarily 20 years later. Right. You're talking about Lucius Cornelius Sala, right? The one who marched on Right, home. but this is a distraction from the point. The, the point okay, is that right. these temples were, were great centers of wealth and that the dedications which men laid on their altars, hoping to curry favor with the gods, became the property of the temple, and the temple did with those dedications what it saw fit. That's right. the analogy here. Yahweh, God, claimed Isaac for himself. He commanded Abraham to give him Isaac, to put Isaac on that altar. Now, Abraham thought he was going to have to sacrifice Isaac by killing him, but Abraham also knew all these promises that Yahweh made concerning Isaac previous to this. So Abraham put his faith in God. There's no doubt that Abraham had great faith in God that somehow many nations would come through his loins through Isaac. However, he was commanded to put Isaac on that altar. He had faith in God and he did it. When Abraham put Isaac on that altar at Yahweh God's command... Isaac became his property. This is the only man in world history that could make the claim that God chose him to belong to God. And, and that's the difference between the Christian religion and the pagan religions, where the pagan religions choose God, the pagans choose the gifts they want to offer to the God. Well, God chose Isaac, and, and Christianity is the only valid religion and only if you didn't come through Isaac God has nothing to do with you that's why God chose Isaac so you're saying in, in the pagan religion if we're you know druids hanging out or if I'm going to the temple of Apollo I choose to offer up you know four silver coins and that's and, my and, choice and hope for favor from Apollo because you gave up those four coins right at, at Delphi, if you were a wealthy man, if you were a wealthy man and you wanted to embark on a venture, before you embarked on a venture, you would send to the temple at Delphi, and you would send a gift with an emissary who would lay that gift on the temple. It became the property of the temple. Then the emissary would make a, a, an inquiry to the oracle about your venture, and the oracle would come back with an answer. You hoped for a favorable answer because of the magnitude of your gift. You were buying the God. Okay? That's the way the pagan world functioned. 
That's not the way Yahweh God functions. Yahweh commanded Isaac. Yahweh chose Isaac. Abraham didn't choose Yahweh and say, hey, I'm going to dedicate my son to you and I hope you, that he does good. That, that's how the pagan world operates. That's not how Yahweh operates. Yahweh said, I want Isaac. You put him on that altar. If you didn't come through Isaac, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. If you didn't come through Isaac, you have nothing to do with God. He has nothing to do with you. He chose Isaac. Isaac was dedicated to God on that altar, period. Now, this defines not only why the, the, um, the Scripture focuses on these two groups of people that came from the loins of Isaac from this time, but... World history, even though most people in the world don't realize it, has also revolved around these two groups of people. The Bible and world history. The first 11 chapters of Scripture were all about Yahweh and the creation and the Adamic race. From chapter 12 on, it's all about one man's family, and even that is limited to these descendants of Isaac. The descendants of Isaac are dedicated on this altar to the purposes of God at his command. Not under the will of man, but under the, the, the providence and the, the, the command of God to Abraham. So that, that's well, a big difference. Pagan people see, didn't they see the folly inherent in their system where... If I'm a wealthy businessman or a merchant and I bring them 10 pounds of gold and I say, you know, um, tell me, am I, am I favored? And they just say, oh, yes, absolutely, the gods favor your upcoming business venture. I'm basically just paying them to tell me what I want to hear. Well, well, of course. There, there were a lot of flaws in, in, in the pagan world. That's why it was so readily supplanted with Christianity. Yeah, and pagans today, they claim that they're pagans. They're just clowns, too. They're, they're jokers. They don't even understand paganism. Right, well, Christianity, in the early era anyway, it was not in any position to force itself on pagans. It gained wide acceptance in the Mediterranean, Greco-Roman world because people were obviously tired of their empty, meaningless existence, and it brought them answers to questions that might have been burning in their mind, and they were probably tired of the decadence and the overt corruption, you know, give 10 pounds of gold at the Temple of Apollo, and Apollo will bless you, well, no, the the owner of the Temple of Apollo takes your gold and tells you what you want to hear. Well, absolutely. Yahweh God claimed Isaac for himself, and Abraham, being Isaac's father, had every right to give him over to God, and he did. The Israelites and the Edomites both came from Isaac, two vessels from the same lump, as Paul explains in Romans 9.21. Out of these, the Israelites became to Yahweh a peculiar or a special treasure above all people, Exodus 19.5, a relationship which the Apostle Peter in the second chapter of his first epistle informs us still stands to this day. That relationship has never been dissolved, period, and which always shall stand according to the words of Christ in Revelation chapter 21 verse 12, chapter 22 verse 2. Only the Israelites who descended from Isaac are the vessels under honor and the vessels of mercy which we see Paul describe in Romans chapter 9. 
Only these were cleansed by the blood of Christ as he promised. Jeremiah 33, 8. Ezekiel 37:23. Only the long-dispersed nations of Israel are subject to the promises of the New Testament. Esau was also dedicated to Yahweh in the loins of Isaac. Esau and the Edomites, they are the vessels unto dishonor, dishonor and the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction of Romans chapter 9. Paul is contrasting Jacob and Esau throughout Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and much of chapter 11. From the time of the sacrifice of Isaac, the biblical narrative, and eventually the entire focus of world history, once you understand the players and their identities, have almost completely evolved around Jacob and Esau. All of the other Genesis 10 nations, Yahweh left to go their own way. Paul explains that in Acts chapter 14, verse 16, in his discourse to the Lycaonians, who are from among those other Genesis 10 nations. The choice of Abraham's seed was not in comparison to the other races. That's ridiculous. Oh, God chose the white race. Well, well, no, he didn't. He gave up most of the white race. He chose one family, one man out of the white race. He gave up the rest of it. He chose Isaac. Only Isaac is dedicated to the purposes of God. The choice of Abraham's seed was not in comparison to the other races, but only to the rest of the Adamic race. And most, well, 99.999% of whites today are absolutely oblivious to the idea that the white race was at one time a much larger entity than it is now. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are about the entire Adamic race, the rest of the Bible is about one family chosen out of that race. Where the other Adamic nations are mentioned following the sacrifice of Isaac, it is usually only where they come into contact with Israel. Sometimes they were even used to punish Israel. Where any non-Adamic peoples are mentioned, it is only because they are being used to punish Israel or to curse or destroy the other branches of the Adamic race. As can be seen throughout the books of the prophets, and, and I hope we, we have a segment soon in this series, which gets into that in, in much greater depth, I, I certainly plan on it. This cannot be stressed sufficiently, that the sacrifice of Isaac was only partially about Abraham's obedience, the greater part was that God chooses men. Man cannot choose God. That's pagan, that idea. And God chose Isaac. That's Christian. From Isaac, one lump, we have two vessels, the blessed Jacob and the accursed Esau, as Paul himself explains. Do you have any comments, questions? Oh, I think you hit it there. I want to talk about 
real quick because this is always a question. It's right in scripture. I don't know why people, more people don't see it, but, but I probably overlooked it at times myself. That the origin of the wives of Isaac and Jacob in that same Genesis chapter, in, in um, Genesis chapter 22. So Abram returned unto his young man after the sacrifice of Isaac, and they rose up together and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. That now, this next part of Scripture is what I'm talking about. It's always overlooked. And, and it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah. Now, Milcah is the daughter of Abraham's brother Haran in Genesis 11:29. Milcah, she also has borne children unto thy brother Nahor. Now, Nahor was quite an old man by this time. And, and this is also basically something that wouldn't normally be expected. The hand of God is also in this. Huz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, and Kenuel, the father of Aram. This isn't the Aram who later became the Syrians. That Aram would be a son of Shem. And Bethuel, and Bethuel begot Rebekah. That Rebekah is Isaac's future wife. So we see that Nahor, Abraham's brother, also having children at a very advanced age and, and contrary to expectation. So, so this is, the, the hand of God is as evident here as it is in the birth of Isaac. And Rebekah was actually a descendant of Abraham's brother. These eight Milcah did bear to Nahor, Abraham's brother. And his concubine, whose name was Ruamah, she also bare Tibah and Gaham and Tahash and Makah. So, so that's the source of the wives of Isaac and Jacob. When Abraham was called, Nahor, his brother, was childless. This Rebekah and, and, and this um, Laban, Jacob's father-in-law, that this is um, basically just as miraculous as the birth of Isaac was to Abraham and to Sarah. Now, now in Genesis chapter 25, verse 20, and in several other places, Laban is called the Syrian. Well, well, he wasn't really a Syrian in the sense of Aram, the Genesis 10 Aram, who was the eponymous ancestor of the Arabians, or, or people later called the Syrians. That word Syrian is Aram in the Hebrew. So we see right from Genesis chapter 25 that geographical labels and, and racial or tribal labels were being confounded at, at that early time. So now we see that the, the uh, scripture tells us the source of the wives of Isaac and Jacob came right from Abraham's brother Nahor. Before we get into the um, story of Jacob and Esau, well, we're not going to get very far into this tonight. Well, we're probably going to um, continue this next week real soon here. Do you have any comments? No. Excuse me.
I had a question, but I forgot it. It'll have to come back to me. Well, well I'm going to say something that's going to irk a lot of people right away. Jacob was renamed Israel by God. Esau was renamed Edom. And while this may fluster some people, the name Edom in Paleo-Hebrew is really the exact same word as Adam. This, I believe, is also a parable illustrating the difference between the man who would follow the will of God, which is the spiritual man, Jacob, he who would rule with God, and the man who would follow after his own lusts, which is the man of the flesh, which is Esau. Therefore, his name was changed to Adam. Edom and Adam are the exact same word. The distinguishment is only by the Hebrew scribes, or later on, the Jewish scribes, who made it because they had to tell the difference between where the word Adam appeared in context and where the word Edom appeared in context. But the difference is really only in the vowel points. The vowel points did not exist in Paleo-Hebrew, in the original Hebrew. That would be the cause for much confusion. But the Edomites are certainly a distinct and an accursed people in Scripture. That there, there's no doubt about that when you examine the context of the Bible. I believe these names were given to Jacob and Esau to, to make that illustration for us as a parable that Jacob's name was changed to Israel because Jacob obeyed his parents and kept to his own race while Esau obeyed the lust of his flesh and forsook his race and really didn't care about it. When I did, um, when I offered the podcast version of my essay translating John chapter 1 verses 11 through 13, in, in March of 2012, I'm going to quote myself, I said this, If indeed we care about our culture, our race, our heritage in the first place, we may read the Bible and other works of our historical literature. From them, we formulate a Weltanschauung, a world view, based upon what we believe that those books are telling us. Many of us, too lazy to read and research for ourselves, base our world views upon the opinions of others and what they think those books might be saying. It is from this formulated worldview that we judge what is right and what is wrong. Jacob was blessed because he followed after the worldview of his parents and his God. Esau was cursed because he had no care for his heritage and based his actions upon his own judgments. Each of us makes a choice to be like Jacob or to be like Esau. We can rule with God or we can rely on the flesh. That's the primary distinction between the, the, the personalities of Jacob and Esau as I estimate them. Esau, who took Canaanite and Ishmaelite wives, Esau was called by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews, 
a fornicator and a profane person. And this is why he despised his birthright. Esau was rejected by God for race mixing. History revolves around Jacob and Esau ever since the sacrifice of Isaac. That is scripture from Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. And this, by this, Esau despised his birthright by his race mixing. Esau was rejected by God for race mixing. Now, I believe that Esau marrying with the Canaanites... He carried the curse of Cain, and the Kenites had previously, as we see in Genesis chapter 15, intermingled themselves with the Canaanites. Esau carries the curse of Cain and the enmity upon the seed of the serpent down through history to this time. He, I believe, was the vessel chosen by God to manifest that. Now, there's an entire peripheral world and and the seed of the serpent, I believe, it is um, ubiquitous throughout that world. But Esau is the focal point of the wrath of Yahweh, and and well, and and towards his race and his race, he's he himself may have been an Adamic man, but his none of his children were, and his race is basically. Because he intermarried with it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Where, where Jacob is the focal point of the Adamic race and, and the blessings of the Adamic race would be carried down through Jacob. All the promises to the fathers would be carried down through Jacob. And, and that's the difference between Jacob and Esau. And, and they're both from the patriarch Isaac. Right, they both came from the same place, but they're not both going to the same place. Although, well, well, theoretically, right. well, one um, followed God, and you are, one followed the lusts of his flesh. You articulated, though, that the promise is that all seed shall be saved. So does that mean Esau will be in the kingdom, but he will have a very low place in the kingdom? Well, well Esau is an Adamic vessel. I believe that he will be. I believe that he is eternal. He was chosen by Godway. He, to, he followed his own lusts. And Yahweh chooses men for their destruction as well as he chooses them for their elevation. That, that's, that's a fact of Scripture. Yahweh raised right, up now, Pharaoh just so he could destroy him. Right, but the race then that Esau sired, Yahweh will make a full end of them. Well, well, of course, all of Esau's children are bastards. That's why Esau could not have his birthright. He had no legitimate seed. There was nobody to leave it to. Who could he pass it down to? Right. So Esau will be in the kingdom. His punishment will be that, one, he is very low in the kingdom, and two, all of his children, grandchildren, etc., will be burned up in the lake of fire, and he will be alone in the kingdom, basically. Well, well that's the prophecy of Obadiah. That, that's what the prophecy of Obadiah tells us that Yahweh has in store for the children of Esau in Obadiah 17 and 18. 
The circumstances of the births of Jacob and Esau are representative of their later roles in life. Would you like to read from Genesis 25, verses 21 through 26, or would you like me to? Genesis 25, 21 to 26. And Isaac entreated Yahweh for his wife because she was barren, and Yahweh was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of Yahweh, and Yahweh said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. Esau means Harry. That the um that that yeah, you know, there's a lot of clowns that want to write their own Bible that that um that wanna claim that Esau was some kind of demon spawn, some some kind of devil's baby. And, and that's blasphemous and, and it's slanderous. It, re, it it's refuted by scripture that that um that there's several scriptures which clearly state that Esau was the son of Isaac, several witnesses, not just one, and there's no reason to believe that these twins were born of anyone but Isaac. Esau is a sinner. A lot of men are sinners, and we should face up to it. The men of the Adamic race, well, well they're no better than the average monkey that falls out of a tree in Africa if they depart and, and despise their God and the laws of their God. That's just the way it is. There's history, that there are examples of that in, in history and immediately at hand that are countless. So, but we shouldn't automatically ascribe to bad genes every man who goes astray Esau had the best of genes, and, and he still went astray. He still despised the, the heritage that could have been his. Well, if he's a demon spawn, then it says they're twins, and that means Jacob must be the same twin demon then. Well, well no, because they equated to the, the, the event in Genesis chapter 3 and, and the Garden of Eden, which are entirely different circumstances. And so now they're claiming then that Rebecca no... was defiled by some demon and impregnated right. with Esau, but at the same time she was also impregnated by um, Isaac. So she has one child of Isaac and then the twin, which is the demon twin. Right. There's absolutely no scriptural basis for that. There's no scriptural basis for any um, seduction or temptation or violation of Rebecca. It, it's just something that people like to make up because they like to ascribe the fact that people are bad to genetics and, and it's not always ascribable to genetics even though Christ says that a good tree can't produce bad fruit and that is true that doesn't mean that the fruit of a good tree cannot sin 
if the fruit of a good tree couldn't sin, that, then we wouldn't have any reason for punishment under the law, for chastisement, because none of us would ever sin. Yet the man who says he was without sin makes God a liar. All men sin. It, it's, it cannot be, sin cannot be divided along genetic lines. And, and there are people that claim to be Christian identity, they're really clowns, but I've seen time and time again people claiming to be Christian identity and make those ridiculous assertions. Esau was the son of Rebekah and Isaac. There is absolutely not one whit of scriptural evidence to suggest otherwise. And, and there are many witnesses that indeed Esau was Isaac's son. Now, now in Hebrew, that, that two nations are in thy womb would be two goyim are in thy womb, right? That there aren't any Jews in, in, in Rebecca's womb. <laughs> That's just an, an aside. Isaac loved Esau. Isaac loved Esau because Isaac loved his belly. That's just a fact of scripture. Esau would have gotten the blessing if it were not for Rebekah's intervention. From verse 27 of that same chapter, And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. Now, now how many men follow their bellies? Isaac was one of them. It, it says it right here in, in verse 28. But Rebekah loved Jacob, and Jacob sawed pottage. And Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore he called his name Edom, meaning red. Adam. Adam means red. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore to him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. In Genesis chapter 26, the promise to Isaac is reaffirmed. At the end of the chapter, following the episode amongst the Philistines, we have this. And Esau was 40 years old when he took the wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. In Genesis chapter 27, we see an episode where Esau goes off to hunt to procure meat for his father's belly. And Rebekah arranged a way in which Jacob could procure Esau's blessing from his father while his brother was absent. This was done by deception. But even after the deception was discovered, Isaac basically agreed to it, that it was done. Well, would you like to read this next paragraph? <laughs> 
All right. Genesis 27:19. And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou bade me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said unto his son, How is it that thou hast found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because Yahweh thy God brought it to me. And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. I have to wonder, though, um, what sort of person is Isaac that he would bless Esau after Esau's run off and taken up with Hittites? Well, well that is why Rebecca engineered Jacob's taking of the blessing from Isaac. I mean, why did that have to be engineered, though? I mean, what does it matter if Isaac says, you know, I bless this race mixer, God doesn't agree? Because Isaac, as the scripture explains prior to this, and as I, we just pointed out, Isaac loved his belly. He loved Esau because he loved his belly. Right, but couldn't God just step in and say, you know, Jacob, you have the blessing, Esau is over there doing his own thing? Well, well you know, Rebecca was the vehicle through which God did that. Right. Basically, God saved the birthright through a woman, through Rebecca. Okay. Rebecca realized and explained to Isaac, even though we see at the end of verse of, of um, chapter 26 that the Hittite daughters were the Hittite daughter-in-laws, I should say, were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebecca. Isaac evidently wasn't ready to do anything about it. Rebecca did do something about it. First, she engineered a way by which Jacob could secure the blessing, and then she pointed out to Isaac that if Jacob followed in the way of Esau and married Hittite women, that her life would be no good to her, that that would be a real problem. So Isaac, at that time, and, and we're going to see that in, in, in the next part of this presentation, at that time, Isaac woke up to the fact that it was indeed a problem and sent Jacob back to the land of his ancestors so that Jacob could secure wives from their kinsmen. And right. Esau then realizes that he's a screw-up for taking Hittites, that his father was displeased with it, and Esau goes out and tries to fix it, but he screws up again by getting himself an Ishmaelite daughter. Ish Ishmael's already been rejected for the inheritance. So an Ishmaelite wife, a daughter of the Ishmaelites, the wife, that, that's not going to do him any good. So Esau, even when he tries to correct his mistakes, he can't do it right. And, and with that, that that's probably a, a good, I, I hate to break this off, but that's probably a good place to do it. And we have a lot to, to, to present with the story of Jacob and Esau. This is an important story. We're going to get into Hebrews chapter 12 next week and show that Paul understood that this was all about racial integrity. Paul understood it. That's why he called Esau a profane man and a fornicator. That's why Esau really despised his birthright. The bowl of porridge was only in commemoration of that. He already lost his birthright when he married the damned Hittites.
Right, and the, the, the choice of word, fornicator, most modern mainstream evangelicals think fornication means that you went to bed with a woman and you didn't have a state-issued marriage license signed by, you know, the, the justice of the peace. But in this instance, there's no indication that Esau is having intimate relations with anyone other than his Hittite so-called wife, yet he is still referred to as a fornicator. Well, well, there was no wedding license at this time. Wedding ceremonies were not necessary. We see that with Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. The, right, the wedding. Is, how can he fornicate <clears throat> with his own wife? Right. The wedding of Abraham to Hagar. Hagar, the scripture clearly says, Hagar became his wife. And, and that was a business arrangement between Sarah and Abraham. Hagar didn't even have a say in the matter. That's, you know, a wedding, it is, it's very, it, it's a social construct as to what a wedding is, but a wedding is an agreement between a man and a woman or a man and whoever in the ancient world has the rights of property over that woman because, well, women were more often than not property in the ancient world. That's just the way it was. Right, in, the, in the Roman we'll, world, correct me if I'm wrong, a father could command her daughter to divorce a man. Well, well yeah, right. There, there were all kinds of latitudes that family ha families had over their um, female skions. The, the, um, in, in, in the world of Laban, we'll see in the next part of this presentation, Laban chose to marry his daughters to Jacob. The daughters didn't have a say in the matter. They had no say whatsoever in the matter. The choice was the fathers, Laban's. They didn't choose Jacob. There, there was no romance. There was no courtship. Now, Jacob met Rachel and loved her and wanted her, but he ended up married to Leah. He didn't want Leah, but he ended up married to her, and he took her as his wife, and, and, and they had six children together. And she was his wife every much as every bit as much as Rachel was his wife. Wife, even though Jacob did have a, a, a love and an affinity for for Rachel, and that's a special relationship, of course. But Leah was his wife, and he certainly didn't have that love for Leah. But he still respected her as a wife, and, and had six children with her. So, so that choice belonged to the Laban. It didn't belong to Rachel, it didn't belong to Leah, it didn't belong to Jacob. It was basically a property transaction at the will of the father. That's the way it is, that's the way the ancient world was. A marriage, what, what you want to call a marriage, in, in the eyes of God, it is, I would consider it an agreement between a man and a woman, and, and a sexual unit, union that consummates that agreement, that makes the marriage, the two become one flesh. But... You don't need state approval. You don't need state approbation to make a marriage. Once we do that, then the state becomes our God. I don't want to make the state my God. So, so it could be argued what a marriage is, but it, it's basically a social contract, construct. But there's no marriage at all without a sexual consummation in, in any event. So. Well, here, here you go. I'd like to read just real quick from the Ohio State Bar Association. 
Marriage is a legal as well as spiritual and personal relationship. When you state your marriage vows, you enter into a legal contract. There are three parties to that legal contract. One, you. Two, your spouse. And three, the state of Ohio. Well, what if I'm not interested in making a legal contract involving those three parties? Well, well right. The state becomes God in, in that matter. And, and people accept that. They shouldn't accept that. They shouldn't accept the state as their God. People should be responsible to their immediate families and to their immediate community, and that's Christian, but the state shouldn't become people's gods. Well, when the state started regulating personal relationships, people should have balked right away. Well, well that horse was out of the barn a hundred years ago or better. When states decided that they should start issuing marriage licenses, and like they issue dog licenses. Of, of course they shouldn't right. be and in that business. We've reached a point where not only men can't decide who their daughters marry, but most men won't even tell their daughter, don't marry that man. If you marry that man, I'm cutting you off. They just right. roll over and they say, well, she can marry who she wants as long as she's happy. Well, well the Word Whatever of God establishes the foundation for marriage. It's between a male and female, and that male and that female should be of the same flesh and of the same bone. Now, I said before that marriage was a social construct. What I should have properly said was that the wedding was, and, and the way it was done, was is the social construct, right? But marriage is between a man and a woman, and, and it's an agreement between them, and they have to be of the same flesh and the same bone. If, if, if we don't have those criteria, then there's no possibility of marriage. It's ridiculous. So, so right. what, what marriage is is, 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 um, it is outlined in Genesis chapter 2 between Adam and Eve. That's the first example of marriage. So, there's, you know, we could talk about it all day. There's a, there's a million perspectives. Well, we could talk about marriage from the social perspective today, and we, ex well, we have certain social expectations of the marriage process, but that's our modern paradigm, and that modern paradigm isn't necessarily legitimate 200, 300, 400, 1,000, and 3,000 years ago. That, that social paradigm is peculiar to our age, our time, our society. 3,000 years ago, it wasn't like that. You went to a girl's father and said, I need a wife. I want your daughter to wife. What are the arrangements? What do you require of me? And, and he would work that out with you. And she had nothing to do with it. And that would be based then on... His impression of you, if you have a reputation as an honorable man in the local community versus you're a vagabond, a drunkard, and a fornicator. Well, well, I'm sure even in the ancient world, that requirement varied from community to community. We see in these Genesis accounts that Abraham sent back to his own kinsmen to procure a wife for Isaac from his own kinsman, that was the requirement. And Abraham's servant did that properly and came back with Rebekah. We see that Jacob and Isaac had followed that same pattern for Jacob, sending Jacob back to the house of, of, of Terah and, and his own kinsman, or Haran and, and his own kinsman to the city of Haran. And, and um, Jacob made sure that he found his mother's kinsman, Rebecca's kinsman, from which he would procure his wife. And he ended up with four, right? 
but that was that that was important to them. What was important to people in other communities was something different. Right. So, and, and throughout medieval history, if you were a German from a village in Baden-Württemberg, you were expected to marry a German girl from your village or some nearby village. And, and that was the expectation, and that's what most people did most of the time for, for 1,500 years in Europe. You wouldn't go on a trip up to Hamburg and find a wife there. Well, well I, I mean, people married at a young age, and they married people that, that, that were close in proximity, to the, in proximity to their own race and kind. That was the norm. Today, there basically is no norm. It's a free-for-all, and people seem to marry whoever they happen to be lusting after at that particular moment in time. Well, well right. In the time of Jacob and, and the patriarchs, women were, were basically... That they were under the wing, and and it boils down to them being treated like property very much of the time, not all of the time, but quite frequently, and and that's unfortunate. But it's a patriarchal society, and in a in an unkind world, very often that's a requirement of survival for the race, for for men to take charge pick their nuts up off the floor, put them back in their pants and act like men and assert themselves in their society and take control over their wives and their daughters. And, and if we did that, we'd have a lot less problems in the world. It's the Jew that wants to liberate women in society, really meaning that they want to liberate women from their men so, so that they could manipulate them and, and take advantage of them. And that's what we've seen in Western society the last 150 years, where, where the control of our women has moved from their fathers and their husbands and their brothers into the hands of the Jew. So, so that, that's what liberation of women has gotten us. Now, if, if fathers had assertion over their own households, perhaps it wouldn't be that way. It, it might be, in a lot of cases, tyrannical, what, where women are married off for the wrong reasons, and, and we've seen a lot of that in history. But, uh, I mean, at every sword has its, has its edges. That, that's just the way it is. So, it, it's... Um, well, the idea that, you know, these modern women that say, you know, I'm my own woman, well, what that really means is basically she's everybody's woman, and a woman that says she's her own woman... It means, you know, she's not under the care or the protection or the guidance of any man, so she's basically having a free-for-all orgy with any and all comers, basically. Well, well, that's one of the major serious problems we have with the, um, with the, with the, the modern, postmodern society and Jewish humanism and, and the prevalence of these humanistic beliefs and, and the, the rejection of God in society. That's one of the biggest problems is the so-called liberation of women has led to the debasing of women. So that, that's, a, that, that's a topic for a program on the protocols of Zeon and the Communist Manifesto, not, not for Genesis chapter 27. So right. next week we will, we will pick, pick up, up next with week. Genesis chapter 27 and, and the story of Jacob and Esau. Excellent. Okay. 
Okay, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening, everybody. Praise Yahweh, and, and I, I thought we'd really get through this this week, but it's just not possible. Next week, the story of Jacob and Esau, and, and we'll probably move on from there to discuss the, the descendants of Esau, the nature of his wives, the, the mixing of the Edomites and Ishmaelites, and, and ultimately the blessing of the 12 tribes by Jacob, and, and follow that two-seed line paradigm down through the Old Testament is various topics I'd like to discuss before we move on to two-seed line in the New Testament. Praise Yahweh. I will be here next Friday night with Acts chapter 26. Good night. Call recording has been completed.